Okay, we're in Leviticus chapter 14. Lord, we ask you to work in our hearts tonight as we study your word in Jesus' name. Amen. Once Jesus entered a certain village, and there he met ten lepers who were crying out to him for mercy. We're told in Luke 17 that when Jesus saw the lepers, he said to them, Go show yourself to the priests. And so it was that as they went, they were cleansed. Hey, all ten lepers were healed. And Jesus sent them to the priest to be declared clean so that they could begin a new life. But as they set out for the temple, only one of the healed lepers returned to thank Jesus for the miracle. And that's when Jesus asked, were there not ten cleansed? But where are the nine? Two thousand years later, millions of people the world over have now been healed by Jesus. But if we listen to him, I think we can still hear him ask, Didn't I heal John and Jim? Didn't I save Beverly and Becky? Didn't I comfort Andy and Ashley? But where are they now? Guys, are we among the nine nowhere to be found? Or are we among the few who have taken the time to say thanks to Jesus for his cleansing power in our lives? This is the obvious, applicable lesson that springs from Luke chapter 17 that we need to be grateful. But in this story, there are a few more subtle lessons that we need to understand. First, Jesus sent these healed lepers to the priest to make their cleansing official. As we learned last week in Leviticus chapter 13, the priests had the responsibility of inspecting for leprosy. They were the ones that actually diagnosed a leprosy. And so, for these ten men, they needed to return to the priest so that they could be pronounced clean and so that they could rejoin the community. That's interesting. For Jesus was not only concerned about their healing, he was interested in their reconciliation to the community. That's why he sent them back to the priest. You see, the work of Jesus is always about not just restoring us to God, but also restoring us to each other. And yet I think there's even a more fascinating reason why Jesus sent these ten lepers back to the priest to be pronounced clean. For when they got to the temple and the priest observed their healing and confirmed it, he then performed a ritual. And in that ceremony, these ten recipients of grace saw a beautiful picture, a symbolic, typological picture of Jesus, of both his crucifixion and his resurrection. In other words, they got a glimpse of the work of Jesus that would ultimately pay for their healing and that ultimately pays for ours. Which brings us to Leviticus chapter 14, which describes that ritual that depicts so beautifully the work of Jesus Christ. Verse 1. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, This shall be the law of the leper for the day of his cleansing. He shall be brought to the priest. And the priest shall go out of the camp. That's where the lepers lived, outside the camp. And the priest shall examine him. 
And indeed, if the leprosy is healed in the leper, then the priest shall command to take for him who is to be cleansed two living and clean birds, cedar wood, scarlet, and hyssop. Now, Jesus healed countless lepers. We remember that from the Gospels. In fact, it was one of the signs that he gave to John the Baptist that he was indeed the Messiah. But prior to the coming of Jesus, healings of lepromatus or that malignant, lethal form of leprosy, were rare. In fact, there's only one recorded healing of leprosy in all of the Old Testament. You remember the story? A Syrian general by the name of Naaman obeyed Elijah's commands, and he dipped himself in that dirty, muddy Jordan River seven times. He thought, what in the world am I doing? Until he came up that seventh time. And all of a sudden, we're told his flesh was restored like the flesh of a little child, and he was clean. But there's another form of leprosy. There's a leprosy known as tuberculoid leprosy, which was benign. It would plague a person for one to three years, and then it would naturally disappear. And it was in the cases of this miraculous healing or in this natural healing that the former leper would come and be inspected by the priest so that he could be readmitted to society. If indeed he had been cleansed, then the priest offered a sacrifice involving five ingredients. Actually six if you count the two birds. But two birds, a few pieces of cedar, a strand of scarlet thread, and a branch from a hyssop plant. Verses 5 through 7 provide us what we might call a bird's eye view of Jesus' crucifixion and resurrection. He says, And the priest shall command that one of the birds be killed in an earthen vessel over running water. Isn't that what happened to the Son of God? He flew from heaven and he came in an earthen vessel. He was made in the form of a man. He took on human flesh. And he nested in a tree, didn't he? In a tree made of wood, in a Roman cross. And there Jesus was killed for your sin and for my sin. His death was not a waste. In Jesus Christ, he was crucified over running water. And thus, that running water now flows the merits of his work down through the centuries all across the continents. Actually, water in the scripture is a type of the word of God. Running water or living water is a type of the Holy Spirit. And so the word of God predicted his death. The spirit of God transmits its effects throughout the ages. The word and the spirit combine to bring the water of Calvary, the cleansing flow of Jesus Christ down to us today. Verse 6 tells us, as for the living bird, he shall take it, the cedar wood and the scarlet and the hyssop, and dip them and the living bird in the blood of the bird that was killed over the running water. Now notice these items that accompany the birds. They're for the birds. The cedar wood reminds us, of course, of the cross, the wood to which Jesus was nailed. The strand of scarlet is the color of blood, which was the payment for our sin, the blood. The hyssop branch reminds us of the Roman soldiers who dipped a sponge in sour wine. They tied it to a hyssop branch and then they lifted it to Jesus' mouth just to moisten his lips so he could utter his final words, It is 
finished, literally paid in full. Now the priest takes this living bird, the cedar wood, the scarlet, the hyssop, and he shall sprinkle the blood of the first bird seven times on him who is to be cleansed from the leprosy and shall pronounce him clean and shall let the living bird loose in the open field. Jesus is the bird that died for our sin, but Jesus is no longer dead, is he? He's no longer dead. He has risen from the dead, for he is also the living bird who was turned loose in the open field. Both speak of Jesus. Yes, Jesus died, but don't you dare leave him in the grave. Many people do that, you know. Oh, yeah, they count his work on the cross as forgiveness for their sin, but do they walk with him today? Do they realize he's alive? Do they realize that he's also a living bird who wants to nest in our lives? Who wants to do great things in our heart? Don't you leave him in the grave. Today he is alive and he's on the loose. He's the bird that's been turned loose in the open field. He's a living savior. And he's busy cleansing folks from the leprosy of sin. You know, we're guilty of a big mistake. We've made bunny rabbits the symbol for Easter. We need to forget bunnies. A better Easter symbol is a bird that's living and that's on the loose. Hey, what a picture of the crucifixion and resurrection of our Lord Jesus. If you don't see these beautiful portraits, if you don't see in these rituals the resurrection, the crucifixion and the resurrection of Jesus, I suppose you're just a bird brain. What can I say? Verse 8 says, He who is to be cleansed shall wash his clothes Shave off all his hair and wash himself in water that he may be clean. Now, historically speaking, this was a sanitary precaution that protected from the spreading of the leprosy. If there was some lingering remnant of the disease, if there was anything still active, this would prohibit its spreading, this washing. But I also think this is a picture of everyone who's been cleansed from the leprosy called sin. Hey, when Jesus washes away our sin, we become a new creation, don't we? Jesus says we've been born again. We become as pure as the skin of a newborn baby. You remember when Naaman, we read that earlier, when he rose up out of the water, it says that his skin was as clean as that of a newborn child. That's how Jesus sees you. When you become a Christian, when you give your life to Christ, you're cleansed on the inside. You become as clean, as pure as the skin of a newborn child. You are born again. This was why the former leper then shaved off his adult hair, washed all of his clothes. He looked like a grape, I guess. But he was starting over. That was the meaning of the shaving. He was starting over. All things had become new to him. After that, he shall come into the camp and shall stay outside his tent seven days. But on the seventh day, he shall shave all the hair off his head and his beard and his eyebrows. All his hair shall, shave off, shall be shaved off. He shall wash his clothes and wash his body in water, and he shall be clean. After seven days, he shaved again. And you know, as Christians, I think we need to shave over and over again. We need to always approach God, not with our adult cynicism, not with our adult skepticism, not with our adult doubts and fears. We need to approach Jesus. We need to shave off 
that, those adult attitudes. And we need to approach him with a freshness and a newness and the innocence of a little child. Jesus told us to come with the faith of a child. Hey, when you think you know it all, when you think you finally arrived, that you're an adult, that you're mature, you need to shave again. Remember your former leprosy and approach God humbly. And on the eighth day, he shall take two male lambs without blemish, one ewe lamb. And remember, old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become you. New you. The leper was clean, brand new, fresh start. Notice what you've got here. You've got a you, and you've got two male lambs. You've got a you and a two. I guess you put them. You could call it you two. It should be a you lamb of the first year, without blemish, three tenths of an ephah of fine flour mixed with oil as a grain offering, and one log of oil. The ephah was a dry measure. It was about a bushel. The log was a liquid measure, about a pint. Then the priest who makes him clean shall present the man who is to be made clean and those things before the Lord at the door of the tabernacle of meeting. And the priest shall take one male lamb and offer it as a trespass offering and the log of oil and wave them as a wave offering before the Lord. Now, now why do we call it a wave offering? Because you wave it. You guys are getting it. Then he shall kill the lamb in the place where he kills the sin offering and the burnt offering in a holy place. For as the sin offering is the priest, so is the trespass offering. It is most holy. Now the priest shall take some of the blood of the trespass offering. And the priest shall put it on the tip of the right ear of him who is to be cleansed. On the thumb of his right hand and on the big toe of his right foot. Remember, takes the blood, puts it on the tip of his right ear, thumb of his right hand, big toe of his right foot. Remember Leviticus 8? This was also how the priests were dedicated. In other words, he was saying that I belong to God from head to toe. That all that I am is going to be dedicated to God. You know, since the majority of people are right-handed, God here deals with their right side. Or their strengths. So many of us are quick to dedicate our weaknesses to God. But are we just as quick to dedicate our strengths? It's the right ear. It's the right thumb. It's the right big toe. Hey, dedicate your ear to God. Do it tonight. Dedicate your ear to God to listen to His word. Dedicate your thumb or your hands to God to do His will. Dedicate your feet to God to walk in His ways. Those of you starting back to school tomorrow. This would be a good thing for you to do tonight. Dedicate your ears. Dedicate your hands. Dedicate your feet. Be dedicated to God from head to toe. Now since the leper was healed by God, he should show his life, his dedication. He should show his gratitude to God by living a dedicated life. And this is how we also show our gratitude to God. By dedicating all that we are to him. Well, the priest shall take some of the log of oil and pour it into the palm of his own left hand. Then the priest shall dip his right finger in the oil that is in his left hand and shall sprinkle some of the oil with his finger seven times before the Lord. And of the rest of the oil in his hand, the priest shall put some on the tip of the right ear of him who is to be cleansed. 
on the thumb of his right hand and on the big toe of his right foot on the blood of the trespass offering. Notice this, it's important. The blood goes, I'm sorry, the oil goes on top of the blood. Did you notice that? The oil goes on top of the blood. And of course, the oil is a symbol of what? The Holy Spirit. So notice, the oil is not placed where the blood has not been applied. And that's a strategic principle throughout Scripture. The Holy Spirit will not anoint and empower what the blood of Jesus has not previously cleansed. You know, there are all kind of people today, all kind of New Age practitioners and sorcerers and occultists and so forth who run around claiming to have God's power, the Spirit of God flowing through them. They talk about the Spirit, but they deny the necessity of the blood of Jesus. Hey, their power is not from the Holy Spirit. For the Holy Spirit only anoints what the blood has cleansed. The oil goes only over what's already been covered with the blood. Here's another application. I think it's possible to assume that all we need is the power of the Holy Spirit. Sometimes we pray that way. Lord, fill me with your power. That's what I need. But in reality, we really need to confess our sin, don't we? What our problem is, not a lack of power, but there's some sin in our life. It's undermining God's work. And we need to confess our sin. And we need to ask for a fresh cleansing of the blood of Jesus in our lives. You see, God empowers only what he first cleanses. Verse 18 tells us, The rest of the oil that is in the priest's hand, he shall put on the head of him who is to be cleansed, so the priest shall make atonement for him before the Lord. And this is very interesting. In ancient Israel, there were only four groups of people who were anointed with oil on their head. Oil poured out on top of their head. Kings, those who ruled. Prophets, those who spoke for God. And priests, those who stood before God on behalf of the people. Remember the word Messiah means anointed. It speaks of Jesus' ministry. He was the Messiah. His ministry as prophet, priest, and king. But it's interesting. There was a fourth group of people also anointed with oil. Not prophets, not priests, not kings. Lepers. Lepers! Can you believe it? People eaten up by sin were also anointed with oil. Hey, I think God is sending us a message that He wants to use all of us even cleanse lepers, even lepers that have been forgiven and cleansed of their sin. He wants to anoint all of us with His power and His peace and His joy. Some people think the Holy Spirit is only for the spiritual people. The Holy Spirit's for all of us. Kings and priests and prophets and lepers. He picks out four groups. And so, which of those four groups do you fit in? <laughs> Here is a testimony of God's grace. He not only anoints and uses prophets, priests, and kings, but he also uses humble lepers who ask for his forgiveness and dedicate their lives to him. Verse 19. Then the priest shall offer the sin offering and make atonement for him who is to be cleansed from his uncleanness. Afterward, he shall kill the burnt offering 
And the priest shall offer the burnt offering and the grave off, grain offering on the altar. And we talked about all these offerings back in the first five chapters of Leviticus. So the priest shall make atonement for him and he shall be clean. But if he is poor and cannot afford it, then he shall take. And verses 19 through 32 describe the exceptions that are made for the poor. God doesn't want to close the door on anybody. He wants everybody to be able to participate. Verse 33 tells us, And the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron, saying, When you have come into the land of Canaan, which I give you as a possession, and I put the leprous plague in a house in the land of your possession. Now at the time, the Israelites were in the wilderness. Thus they were living in tents. But when they enter the land of Canaan, they're going to build houses. And every homeowner knows that there will be problems. Mold and mildew, fungus and bacteria and wood rot and carpet stains. Sound like your house? Some translations render the word leprosy as a spreading mildew. What exactly Moses has in mind here, we're not sure. But he was obviously concerned about any active infection, growing bacteria that might be spreading throughout your house. Potentially making the family and the community sick. Verse 35. And he who owns the house comes and tells the priest saying, It seems to me that there is some plague in the house. Then the priest shall command that they empty the house. Before the priest goes into it to look at the plague, that all that is in the house may not be made unclean, and afterward the priest shall go in to examine the house. And it's no different today. Whenever you invite the pastor over, you always clean out and clean up the house first. Or you should. <laughs> and he shall examine the plague. And indeed, if the plague is on the walls of the house with ingrained streaks, greenish or reddish, which appear to be deep in the wall, then the priest shall go out of the house to the door of the house and shut up the house seven days. In other words, he quarantines the house. And the priest shall come again on the seventh day and look. And indeed, if the plague has spread on the walls of the house, then the priest shall command that they take away the stones in which is the plague and they shall cast them into an unclean place outside the city. And he shall cause the house to be scraped inside all around. And the dust that they scrape off, they shall pour out in an unclean place outside the city. Then they shall take other stones and put them in the place of those stones. And he shall take other mortar and plaster the house. You know, it looks like a team from the EPA in protective gear removing the asbestos, you know, from your house. Now, before we go further, I have a question. And I want to direct this question to all of the men here tonight. Who is the priest in your house? You should say, I am. If you're a husband, if you're a father, you are the priest in your house. And as a priest, one of your jobs is to continually inspect your house for leprosy. Have you been doing your job? When was the last time you made an inspection? When was the last time you went into your teenager's room and examined the walls? His posters. 
and her pictures and their CDs and the wallpaper on their cell phone and computer screen and the music on their iPod. Oh, 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 but that's none of my business. It is if it's in your house, if it's on your walls. Hey, any privacy that exists in my house has been granted by me. And I can take it away if I feel that an inspection is warranted. Don't you love your kids enough to root out any leprosy? Don't you love your kids enough to, to take away the wall rot that might be growing in their rooms? There have been occasions when we've taken a bedroom door off its hinges just to let the infected child know that there is no privacy until he cleans up his act. Hey, if there's leprosy in your house, it's going to spread. I hope you know that. If it's in big brother's room, it's going to spread to little brother's room. If it's in the bedroom, it's going to spread to the family room. I love my kids. I want them to be clean more than anything in the world. And I am willing to break up stones and scrape mortar and go through drawers and look under beds and read emails and examine phone calls and do whatever it takes to get the leprosy out of my house. That's my job as a priest. If my kids don't like it, they can take it up with God. <laughs> Verse 43. Now, if the plague comes back and breaks out in the house after he has taken away the stones, after he has scraped the house, and after it is plastered, then the priest shall come and look. And indeed, if the plague has spread in the house, it is an active leprosy in the house. It is unclean. And he shall break down the house. It's stones, it's timber, and all the plaster of the house. And he shall carry them outside the city to an unclean place. Demolition is the final answer. And I don't want my family demolished because I failed to get rid of the leprosy. I love my family too much to let that happen. And the rest of the chapter describes the ceremony that's to take place after a house that once had leprosy is pronounced clean. And it's the same ritual done for the leper himself. The two birds, the cedar wood, the scarlet, the hyssop. It's the same sacrifice. Verse 54. This is the law for any leprous sore or scale. For the leprosy of a garment and of a house. For a swelling and a scab and a bright spot. To teach when it is unclean and when it is clean. This is the law of leprosy. You know, what we've learned in this last two chapters is that leprosy can fester in three places. In a person, in a garment, remember we talked about that last week, and in a house. And likewise, sin can incubate and grow in a person's heart, and in a daughter's wardrobe, and in a son's bedroom. And so as with leprosy, we need as parents, to make frequent inspections in our own heart, in our wardrobes, and in our houses, on our walls. Chapter 15 deals with bodily secretions. You excited? You excited about chapter 15? There is some really interesting stuff in chapter 15. There is some really, this is an oozy chapter. 
Verse 1. And the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron, saying, Speak to the children of Israel and say to them, When any man has a discharge from his body, his discharge is unclean. Now, because we're not reading the old King James, we are getting robbed here of a truly incredible pun. Because the word used in the old King James Bible for discharge is issue. And so we could entitle this chapter, The Issues on the Issue. Instead, we're reading about bodily discharges. And this shall be his uncleanness in regard to his discharge. Whether his body runs with his discharge or his body is stopped up by his discharge. (laughs) It is his uncleanness. Now, here is where the Bible was way ahead of its time. It wasn't until 1873. Remember, this was written in 1450 B.C., It wasn't until 1873 A.D. that Dr. Armar Hansen identified the bacterium that causes leprosy. You see, in Europe during the Dark Ages, people believed that leprosy was hereditary. And restrictions on the lepers were relaxed because of that belief. Lepers would even go door to door selling their wares. You can imagine that the disease spread. In fact, the bacterium that causes leprosy is found in high concentrations in the secretions that come from a runny nose. And thus, a runny nose was a serious health threat to the community. Now, of course, this is also true today. As a matter of fact, at Calvary Chapel, if your toddler has green mucusy stuff running from his nose... We don't want you to put him in the nursery. We have laws against this. If you do, he'll probably infect the other children. See, we too have laws against bodily secretions. You just didn't know that. And this was the concern really for all bodily discharges, not just runny noses. There were issues with boils and with scabs and with pustuous wounds and with oozing sores and with infected eyes, and with fungusy ears, and with runny noses, and with severely chapped lips, and ulcerated mouths. Hey, God cared about the spread of infection among his people. Which is the reason here for chapter 15. And these next few verses probably deal with some sort of genital discharge. The result perhaps of a venereal disease or Maybe it was just a simple infection, or it could have actually been a bad case of diarrhea. Well, it could have been. And that made you unclean. But you knew that. (laughs) Verse 4. Every bed is unclean on which he who has that discharge lies. (laughs) And everything on which he sits shall be unclean. (laughs) Never mind. And whoever touches his bed shall wash his clothes and bathe in water and be unclean until evening. He who sits on anything on which he who has the discharge set shall wash his clothes and bathe in water and be unclean until evening. And he who touches the body of him who has the discharge shall wash his clothes and bathe in water and be unclean until evening. 
If he who has the discharge spits on him who is clean, then he shall wash his clothes and bathe in water and be unclean until evening. Nick's best friend plays soccer with him. And this past year we were playing Parkview. And the ref said that Corey spit on one of the other players. And Corey was pronounced unclean and was given a red card and was suspended for the next game. I just thought of that. I don't know. Any saddle on which he who has the discharge rides shall be unclean. Who, <laughs> you never want to ride on a horse after a guy with diarrhea has just been on him. <laughs> Whoever touches anything that was under him shall be unclean until evening. He who carries any of these things shall wash his clothes and bathe in water and be unclean until evening. And whomever the one who has the discharge touches and has not rinsed his hands in water, he shall wash his clothes and bathe in water and be unclean until evening. The vessel of earth that he who has the discharge touches shall be broken, and every vessel of wood shall be rinsed in water. Pottery, uh, clay vessels were broken. The wooden vessels couldn't be broken, but they were cleansed. They were rinsed. Notice, though, the importance placed on the washing with water. I hope you understand that the existence of germs and bacteria were unknown even by the medical profession until the 1800s A.D. Doctors had no idea how diseases were transmitted. In fact, it was not uncommon for a doctor to go from patient to patient without even washing his hands. I mean, back in the 1800s, surgeons were like football players. The idea was the bloodier you are, the dirtier and bloodier your uniform might be, the more respected you'll be among your peers. Oh, look at him. Oh, look at all the surgeries he's done today. Look how bloody he is. Boy, I want him to be my doctor. The bloodier, the better. Often they would walk into rooms with these blood-scattered gowns just to impress their patients. In fact, in the 1800s, the hospital itself was the greatest danger to the patient's health. Today we have much better knowledge of how disease spreads and therefore we emphasize sanitation and sterilization. But understand God knew about this a long, long time before we did. Recently the American Society of Microbiology did a study on the hand-washing habits of Americans. They observed 6,333 men and women in restrooms across five major United States cities. In fact, the researchers might even have examined you. They might even have watched you because they went to a Braves game. And they discovered that only 64% of the restroom patients at Turner Field washed their hands after going to the toilet. Only 64%. That's why you better be careful who you high-five at a Braves game. <laughs> Just warning you now. You see, even though it's not always practiced, health officials insist that simple hand-washing is still the most important means of preventing the spread of infection. God understood that. God knew that long before microbiology was even an ology. 
Verse 13 says, And when he who has a discharge is cleansed of his discharge, then he shall count for himself seven days for his cleansing, wash his clothes and bathe his body in running water, then he shall be clean. On the eighth day he shall take for himself two turtle doves or two young pigeons and come before the Lord to the door of the tabernacle of meeting and give them to the priest. Then the priest shall offer them, the one as a sin offering and the other as a burnt offering. So the priest shall make atonement for him before the Lord because of his discharge. After his cleansing, a sacrifice was still needed. Verse 16. If any man has an emission of semen, then he shall wash all his body in water and be unclean until evening. And any garment and any leather on which there is semen... It shall be washed with water and be unclean until evening. Also, when a woman lies with a man and there is an emission of semen, they shall bathe in water and be unclean until evening. Now understand, this is a normal, healthy, even sacred sexual encounter between a husband and a wife. Nothing here is being done immorally. And yet this couple is still considered unclean until evening. Why is that? Remember what we talked about last week. We delved into the mind of the Hebrew. And you've got to understand Hebrew culture a bit to really understand what's being said here. It's important that we distinguish, as the Hebrews did, between ceremonial uncleanness and moral uncleanness. You know there is nothing morally wrong with a husband and wife having sex. In fact, the Bible teaches that marital sex is beautiful and pleasurable. And it's a holy experience. And that's why if you're not married, you need to wait until you are married before you have sex. So that God will bless it and make it all it intended to be. You rob yourself by not waiting for the bonds of marriage. Hebrews 13 verse 4 says this, Marriage is honorable among all, and the bed undefiled. There is nothing immoral about mar marital sex. This uncleanness was ceremonial. Now remember, moral verdicts of clean and unclean are based on the good or the evil intrinsic to the act. But ceremonial verdicts were based on symbolism. You see, nothing is immoral about marital sex, but when the Hebrews thought of reproduction, God wanted them to recall that sin had poisoned the fountain of life, that we're born into sin. And to condition them to that truth, God attached a ceremonial uncleanness to all reproductive acts. Again, it had nothing to do with morality. It had to do with symbolism. And so God attached uncleanness to all reproductive acts, ceremonial uncleanness, to teach us that sin has poisoned the foundations of life. It was a temporary uncleanness, but it was long enough to make you think of what God was trying to teach you. Same thing in verse 19. If a woman has a discharge, and the discharge from her body is blood, she shall be set apart seven days, and whoever touches her shall be unclean until evening. Everything that she lies on during her impurity shall be unclean. Also, everything that she sits on shall be unclean. 
Whoever touches her bed shall wash her clothes and bathe in water and be unclean until evening. And whoever touches anything that she set on shall wash his clothes and bathe in water and be unclean until evening. If anything is on her bed or on anything on which she sits, which she, he touches, it shall be unclean until evening. And if any man lies with her at all, so that her impurity is on him, he shall be unclean seven days, and every bed on which he lies shall be unclean. Again, a woman's menstrual flow is a natural process. And there's nothing dirty, there's nothing morally unclean about it. Again, these laws were ceremonial. They taught symbolic lessons, figurative lessons. And again, it pointed back to the fact that sin is inherited. It, it, it's a result of the it's passed down through birth. You know, from the parents to the child, we inherit a sin nature. And thus, all reproductive acts were considered. There was a ceremonial uncleanness attached to them. Now, if a woman has a discharge of blood for many days, other than at the time of her customary impurity, or if it runs beyond her usual time of impurity, all the days of her unclean discharge shall be as the days of her customary impurity. She shall be unclean. And remember, this was the problem with the woman in Matthew chapter 9. For 12 years, she had been considered unclean and, virtual, and virtually an untouchable by her family and friends because she had been bleeding. She had an issue of blood for 12 years. In fact, we're told in verse 20 of Matthew chapter 9, And suddenly a woman who had a flow of blood for 12 years came from behind and touched the hem of Jesus' garment. For she said to herself, if only I may touch his garment, I shall be made well. But Jesus turned around, and when he saw her, he said, Be of good cheer, daughter. Your faith has made you whole. And the woman was made well from that very hour. Isn't that beautiful? Understand, the law could only pronounce this woman unclean, but Jesus was willing to heal her. Jesus has healed us all of our uncleanness. That's why these laws no longer apply to us today. That's why you are clean in Christ Jesus. Whether you're discharging something or whether you're not, you're still clean in Christ Jesus. He has cleansed us. He has purified us. We are righteous in His sight. Verse 31, Thus you shall separate the children of Israel from their uncleanness, lest they die in their uncleanness, when they defile my tabernacle that is among them. In other words, if a person was ceremonially unclean, the tabernacle was off limits to that person. Now, this is the law for one who has a discharge. And this is important. Listen to this. For him who emits semen and is unclean thereby, and for her who is indisposed because of her customary impurity, for one who has a discharge, either man or woman, and for him who lies with her who is unclean. Now, here's what he's doing. He's saying that, all sexual relationships made a person unclean and therefore unfit for worship and for the tabernacle. And thus, he separated sex and worship in the minds of the Hebrews. And that was so important. That seems obvious to us, doesn't it? But that was important because in the ancient world, in the pagan cultures, sex was intricately a part of their worship. In fact, among the Canaanites, when the children of Israel get into the land, the Canaanites actually visit temple prostitutes 
And sex is an act of worship in their pagan religion. And God wanted to separate sex from worship so that that kind of thing, temple prostitutes and immoral acts and all that kind of thing, wouldn't be happening in the tabernacle, in the temple, in the worship of God. Moving on. Aren't you glad? I love cliches. How many of you love cliches? I'm actually a connoisseur of cliches. And it may surprise you how many, how many, I use them all the time, don't I? But it may surprise you how many of the cliches that we use in everyday language actually have their origin in the Bible. Check this out. Escaped by the skin of my teeth. That's from Job 19 verse 20. A drop in the bucket. Ever said that? That's Isaiah 40, verse 15. Whiter than snow, Psalm 51, verse 7. Harder than a rock, Jeremiah 5, verse 3. Blind leads the blind, Matthew chapter 15, verse 14. Rise and shine. That's what your parents will be saying to you guys at about 7 o'clock in the morning. Rise and shine. That's Isaiah 60, verse 1. Fuel to the fire. Ezekiel 21, verse 32, hole in the wall. That's Ezekiel 8, verse 7, catch my breath. Job chapter 9, verse 18. And in Leviticus chapter 16, we have another cliche. It is the word scapegoat. How many times have you heard one, someone say, they made me the scapegoat? Well, chapter 16 tells us all about the real scapegoat and the day of atonement. Verse 1. Now the Lord spoke to Moses after the death of the two sons of Aaron when they offered profane fire before the Lord and died. And the Lord said to Moses, Tell Aaron your brother not to come at just any time into the holy place inside the veil before the mercy seat which is on the ark lest he die for I will appear in the cloud before the mercy seat. You remember Nadab and Abihu, the two brothers that went into the tabernacle and God sent fire down and consumed them. You remember the crispy critters back in chapter 10? Perhaps their problem was that they barged into the Holy of Holies, God's throne room. They went in irreverently, uninvited. But from now on, God employs some restrictions that won't let this happen. From this point onward, only the high priest will enter the Holy of Holies and only on one day a year, the tenth day of the seventh month, of Tishri, or as we'll learn it's called, the Day of Atonement. Verse 3. Thus Aaron shall come into the holy place with the blood of a young bull as a sin offering and of a ram as a burnt offering. He shall put the holy linen tunic and the linen trousers on his body. He shall be girded with a linen sash and with the linen turban he shall be attired. These are holy garments. Therefore he shall wash his body in water and put them on. He's to be washed, he's to be dressed. But it's interesting, on the Day of Atonement, Aaron took off the garments of the high priest and he wore these garments, which were only the garments of a common priest. Now throughout this chapter, Aaron is going to stand as a type of our high priest, Jesus Christ, who also incidentally laid aside robes of royalty, robes of glory, and was clothed as a servant who came in the form of a man. 
And as we'll see, the Day of Atonement was serious business. The sin of the nation was covered on this day. In fact, the Jewish Midrash says that for seven days prior, the priest prepared himself for this moment. In fact, he stayed awake the entire night before he entered into the Holy of Holies. And isn't it interesting that Jesus also stayed awake in the Garden of Gethsemane the entire night before he would offer the ultimate sacrifice. And he shall take from the congregation of the children of Israel two kids of the goats as a sin offering and one ram as a burnt offering. These were for the nation. And as a personal sacrifice for him, Aaron shall offer the bull as a sin offering, which is for himself, and make atonement for himself and for his house. You know, it's true, the Day of Atonement speaks of Jesus, but this was the one part of the ritual that didn't apply to Jesus, for Jesus, remember, was sinless. He didn't have to make a sacrifice for himself. He died for us. Verse 7, He shall take the two goats... And present them before the Lord at the door of the tabernacle of meeting. Then Aaron shall cast lots for the two goats, one lot for the Lord, and the other lot for the scapegoat. He would draw straws. One goat became the scapegoat, the other became the sacrifice. And Aaron shall bring the goat on which the Lord's lot fell and offer it as a sin offering. And at that moment, you could say, the Lord got his goat. That was a lot funnier when I thought it up yesterday. <laughs> but the goat on which the lot fell to be the scapegoat shall be presented alive before the Lord to make atonement upon it and to let it go as the scapegoat into the wilderness. Now verse 11. And Aaron shall bring the bull of the sin offering which is for himself and make atonement for himself and for his house and shall kill the bull as a sin offering which is for himself. Then he shall take a censer full of burning coals of fire from the altar before the Lord with his hands full of sweet incense beaten fine and bring it inside the veil. And he shall put the incense on the fire before the Lord that the cloud of incense may cover the mercy seat that is on the testimony lest he die. The smoke from the incense saved his life. This burning incense formed a cloud that shielded Aaron from the brightness and the intensity of God's holiness and of God's glory. It's interesting, the Midrash also gives us other details. The golden censer full of coals was made from red gold, an extremely rare metal. And the priest who entered the Holy of Holies, he always walked in sideways. Another technique of protecting himself from the full brunt of God's glory. There's also a legend that the high priest entered the Holy of Holies with a rope tied around his ankle so that if God rejected his sacrifice and struck him dead, he could be dragged out of God's presence without anyone else walking in and risking their lives. Now he shall take some of the blood of the bull and sprinkle it with his finger on the mercy seat on the east side. And before the mercy seat, he shall sprinkle some of the blood with his finger seven times. And over time, this mercy seat became a blood-stained mercy seat. Then he shall kill the goat of the sin offering, which is for the people. Bring its blood inside the veil. Do with that blood as he did with the blood of the bull, and sprinkle it on the mercy seat and before the mercy seat. So he shall make atonement for the holy place because of the uncleanness of the children of Israel and because of their transgressions for all their sins. And so he shall do for the tabernacle of meeting which remains among them in the midst of their uncleanness. When this priest 
reappeared from behind a veil. The whole nation that was looking on breathed a collective sigh of relief. When he reappeared, it meant that God had accepted their sacrifice. That their sins had been forgiven. That atonement had been made and that for another year their sin was covered. This is actually what the resurrection means to us. It means that God accepted Jesus' sacrifice. And he came out from behind the veil and appeared to us. Verse 17. There shall be no man in the tabernacle of meeting when he goes in to make atonement in the holy place until he comes out, that he may make atonement for himself, for his household, and for all the assembly of Israel. In other words, the high priest worked by himself. He had no help on the day of atonement. And Jesus also went to the cross by himself. He alone bore the penalty for our sin. And he shall go out to the altar that is before the Lord and make atonement for it and shall take some of the blood of the bull and some of the blood of the goat and put it on the horns of the altar all around. Then he shall sprinkle some of the blood on it with his finger seven times, cleanse it and consecrate it with the uncleanness of the children of Israel. Notice the high priest. Now catch this. Notice the high priest entered the Holy of Holies twice. But the second time he exits... He cleanses the place of the sacrifice. And this is prophetic. For Jesus has been in heaven twice. He was there from eternity past. He came to earth, but then he ascended back to heaven. He's been into the Holy of Holies twice. But the second time he comes back, at his second coming, what is he going to do? He is going to purify the place of sacrifice, which is what? Which is this world that we're living in right now. And Jesus is going to judge this earth and purify it and establish his kingdom. Verse 20. And when he has made an end of the atoning for the holy place, the tabernacle of meeting and the altar, he shall bring the live goat. Aaron shall lay both his hands on the head of the live goat, Confess over it all the iniquities of the children of Israel and all their transgressions concerning all their sins, putting them on the head of the goat. Now, throughout the year, people would offer individual sacrifices for their sin, but this was a blanket sacrifice. All their sin now fell on the head of the scapegoat. And the high priest shall send it away into the wilderness by the hand of a suitable man. The goat shall bear on itself all their iniquities to an uninhabited land, and he shall release the goat in the wilderness. And this was why it was a scapegoat, not a scape lamb. For a lamb would return, but a goat would just wander away and never come back. And it was assuring the people that their forgiveness, that their pardon was full and free and complete. Tradition says that in later years, the goat was actually let out a Sabbath distance and then turned loose. Still later, it was taken 12 miles outside of the camp and then released. Each man would lead the goat as far as he could walk on the Sabbath day, and then he would hand it off to another guy who would take it as far as he could walk until it finally was 12 miles away from the camp. Even later, the goat was led over a cliff to its death. Jewish tradition says that a crimson sash was tied to the tabernacle door. And after the goat was released, 
that crimson sash turned white. It was a symbol that their sins had been pardoned. According to the Jewish Midrash, for the 40 years after the Jews rejected Jesus as their Messiah, that ribbon stayed crimson. It never turned white. For when they rejected the crucified Christ, they rejected God's only forgiveness for sin. You see, the scapegoat teaches us an important lesson. It's this. Catch this. If you hear nothing else, here it is. It teaches us that when that what God that when ready? It teaches us that when God forgives, He forgets. Would you say that with me tonight? When God forgives, He forgets. Reminds me of the pastor. He was tormented by a past indiscretion early in his ministry. No one knew about it but himself. He had confessed his sin countless times. He had pleaded with God for forgiveness. But he could never get rid of that guilty conscience, that terrible feeling inside. At the time, there was this very spiritual lady in the church. And she kept saying that God told me this, God told me that. And he was kind of skeptical. He thought it was a little presumptuous to be walking around saying that God told you this and that. And so he decided to put this lady to the test. One day, he, he made the comment. He said, you know, ma'am, if God really speaks to you, why don't you ask him what sin it was that I committed early in my ministry that's caused me so much grief? She says, okay, I'll ask God. A few weeks later, he bumped into her in the hall, and, and he says, ma'am, he says, tell me, did God tell you about my sin? And she said, no, he didn't. He just told me that he doesn't remember. Hey, what God forgives, he forgets. Why don't you forget it tonight? Why don't you let it go? Why don't you really believe God and really take him at his word that your sins have been forgiven, they've been blotted out. It never crosses his mind again. Stop torturing yourself, would you? And receive God's forgiveness Jesus is not just our sacrifice. He's our scapegoat. He has taken our sin away. You remember Psalm 103 verse 12. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions for us. Notice it doesn't say as far as the north is from the south. Because you can go north to a point and you get to the top of the planet and you start going south again. But you can go east forever, can't you? That's how far God has taken away our sin. Jeremiah 31 verse 34 also describes the forgiveness that God grants to those who are in Christ. He says, for I will forgive their iniquity, and notice this, and their sin I will remember no more. Verse 23. Then Aaron shall come into the tabernacle of meeting, shall take off the linen garments which he put on when he went into the holy place, and shall leave them there. And he shall wash his body with water in a holy place, put on his garments, come out and offer his burnt offering and the burnt offering of the people and make atonement for himself and for the people. The fat of the sin offering he shall burn on the altar and he shall release the goat as the scapegoat shall wash his clothes and bathe his body in water and afterward he may come into the camp. The bull for the sin offering and the goat for the sin offering whose blood was brought in to make atonement in the holy place shall be carried outside the camp 
and they shall burn in the fire their skins, their flesh, and their offal. Then he who burns them shall wash his clothes and bathe his body in water, and afterward he may come into the camp, and thus the rituals of the Day of Atonement. Verse 29. This shall be a statute forever for you. In the seventh month, on the tenth day of the month, you shall afflict your souls and do no work at all, whether a native of your own country or a stranger who dwells among you. I remember when Sandy Koufax refused to pitch on the first day of the World Series. I forget what year it was. But Sandy Koufax was a Jew. And they scheduled him to pitch on the Day of Atonement. And he refused to pitch. He was keeping verse 29. For on that day the priest shall make atonement for you to cleanse you, that you may be clean from all your sins before the Lord. It is a Sabbath of solemn... Re- and by the way, you know why Sandy Koufax was so special to me, don't you? He was the only other boy I knew named Sandy. Anyway. It is a Sabbath of solemn rest for you, and you shall afflict your souls. It is a statute forever. The Hebrews call this day Yom Kippur. Yom means day. Kippur means covering or atonement. And for the common person, this was a day of confession, a day of repentance. To the Hebrews, this phrase, afflict your souls, signified a fast. And today, the Jews observe the Day of Atonement as a day of fasting and confession of their sin. But it was also a day of faith. And that's why they did no work on this day. For they spent their day trusting in the work of someone else, the high priest in the Holy of Holies. And this is a type of our faith. We too have rested from our works. And we are trusting in the work of another, in the work, the finished work of Jesus Christ. Well, verse 32. And the priest who is anointed and consecrated to minister as priest in his father's place shall make atonement and put on the linen clothes, the holy garments. Then he shall make atonement for the holy sanctuary and he shall make atonement for the tabernacle of meeting and for the altar. And he shall make atonement for the priests and for all the people of the assembly. This shall be an everlasting statue for you to make atonement for the children of Israel and for all their sins once a year. And he did as the Lord commanded Moses. And you need to get home, get your kids ready for school because it all starts tomorrow. So Lord, thank you tonight for your word. Bless your people this week. Bless the kids as they go back to school. Help them all stand strong. Resist temptation. Deliver our kids from the evil one, Lord. Guide them. Protect them. Keep them right on. Keep them close to you. Work in their lives in a wonderful way. Lord, we're trusting, Lord, that you protect them. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Go home. God bless you.